The Folklore Podcast remains free to listen to thanks to our Patreon supporters. Without them, the show would not continue. To join them from as little as a dollar a month and get access to Folklore audiobook part works and other additional content, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. It is only in relatively recent times that folklore enjoyed any form of place in our academic institutions, and in many it is now sadly on the wane again. Where it is well represented, there is a tendency to look at ties with anthropology, psychology and other such disciplines. Academic folklore works with data sets which already exist and analyses them. In the main, what academic folklore does not do is actively seek out and collect folklore in the way that this used to be done. It is thanks to the collectors of the 19th and early to mid 20th centuries that we have built up such a wealth of collected stories, customs and songs. We have spoken of a couple of them before. There is a bonus episode about Theo Brown on the Patreon feed. Here on the main podcast we discussed Helen Creighton, for example. There are many other notable examples, such as Catherine Briggs. My guest on the podcast today has taken the unusual step of placing one of these folklore collectors as a central character in her novel The Storykeeper. Anna Matsola is a human rights and criminal justice solicitor who also writes dark historical fiction. Her first novel, The Unseeing, won an Edgar Allan Poe Award for its fictionalised treatment of an actual historical murder case. The Storykeeper, set in the world of fairy lore on the Isle of Skye, was nominated for the Highland Book Prize and, according to the Sunday Mirror, casts its own profound brand of dark magic. I spoke to Anna recently about her writing, the extensive research that she does for her novels, and the way that she works with the existing folklore and history in a fictionalised environment. Hello, Anna, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Well, thank you. Lovely to be here. And it's great to have you on. Uh, we've been trying to set this interview up for a little while now, so it's good to finally pin uh, <laughs> you down. This happens a lot. This happens a lot. Um, so I have uh, quite a bit to talk about because um, I opened this up on Twitter and some of your fans uh, responded and wanted me to ask you things too. So we'll cover that a bit later as well. Um, but before we get into lots of those questions... Uh, let's just start, if we can, 
by you just telling us a little bit about yourself and and your writing and what you do for those that aren't familiar with your work and also how you became interested in the areas of folklore that you work with too. Yeah, sure. So um, I write sort of dark historical fiction or gothic fiction. Sometimes it's shelved as historical crime. Basically, I write about bad and strange things happening to people. And I assume this is some fault of my parents. Maybe I was struck by lightning or dropped on my head at an early age. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I tend to go for sort of, you know, the the rather dark and peculiar side of history. Um, and in terms of my interest in folklore, I mean, that started very young. I've got a mother with an Irish background who has always been fascinated by fairy tales and folklore. So that was a big part of my reading as I grew up. And I then moved on to sort of the more of the fantastical, the Narnia story, stories, Ursula K. Le Guin, that sort of thing. So I've always been... I've always been interested in folklore and fairy tales, but sort of more widely, I'm very interested in stories um, and, and storytelling and the way we've always used stories in our lives. So it probably wasn't that surprising that I ended up writing a story about to folklorists, really. No, absolutely. With a, with a background like that, I think it was probably an inevitability, wasn't it? At some, <laughs> I think some it point. Was. Yes. In fact, I, I dedicated the story keeper to my mother and the dedication line says something on the lines of thank you to my mother for introducing me to the bad fairies when I was very young. <laughs> and that was because specifically because I remembered um, uh, a book about fairies, as in F-A-E-R-I-E-S, um, by I think it's Froud and Lee. I don't know if you've seen that book, extraordinary illustrations of evil fairies that really um, had stayed with me. And, and when I started writing my novel, The Storykeeper, I, I, I found that book and took it out and looked back at it and, and understood where it all started going wrong, basically. <laughs> so, um, yes, it's all my mum's fault. Uh, well, that is a wonderful book, it has to be said. And um, I, I have to admit that Brian Froud is on my hit list because he lives not 45 minutes away from here. Oh, does he? Okay. So, uh, yes. And, and, By hit list, I'm hoping you mean you want him on your show rather than you're going to pick him off. Uh, yes, absolutely. Right. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, something, it's something that needs to be organised, definitely. Um, I, I have a friend who, who knows him and his wife very well, and uh, she's equally difficult to pin down. So one way or another, we, we will get this interview to happen at, at some that point. That would be amazing. I would love to hear him, yeah. Yeah, it really would. So before we talk about the story keeper, um I just want to ask you a little bit about your first book, The Unseen, mm. the book that came before that. Now, that is um, uh, as, that is a historic crime novel, really, above anything else, isn't it? Uh, but is based on an actual case. Can you just say a little bit about uh, that as your introductory mm. book? Yes, of course. So my first novel, The Unseeing... Um was indeed based on the life of a real woman called Sarah Gale, who was convicted of aiding and abetting a murder in South London in 1837. Um, it happened in Camberwell, which is near where I live, which is how I found out about it. And I sort of became intrigued by the story of this woman who had been possibly wrongfully convicted um, and certainly in very strange circumstances. So the unseeing became, you know, a story woven around her life, but it is very much fiction. Um, so, yes, that's what started me. It started off as a short story, actually. I think that's how lots of writers start writing. It started, I started off with short short stories, and a lot of them were 
were sort of modern stories and they were all terrible and then I wrote this <laughs> one based on this this crime and um I sort of that's how I found my voice really I, I found that I was I found it easier to write historical stuff for some reason I don't know whether I'm secretly from the past but um yeah that's that's how I ended up writing historical, and that's how I ended up writing historical crime. And then, sort of, we, with each book I've done, it's ended up getting rather darker and stranger. Um, so, so there you go. But yeah, that's so that's the unseeing, um, and that was sort of one of the two books in my contract. And then, and then I moved on to the storykeeper. Uh, and and it was lauded as a really strong first novel as well. And, and although I don't want to talk about the 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 whole kind of publishing aspect of of yours or anybody else's books particularly because that's not what we're about um a, a lot of a lot of listeners are really interested in in how that comes about for people particularly yeah. these days with a lot of fiction um starting off being self published uh, and then being picked up later on um whereas your first your first novel um was traditionally published uh, and and as I say got got was very well reviewed off the back of that as well. How did that come about for you? Um, well, I was I was very lucky to be honest, and I do think with all publishing that a lot of it is down to luck. I think it's, you know part determination and of course part talent, but I think a lot of it is luck. And I um I did as I say I started off with short stories. I um I moved on to trying to write this this wretched novel, which took me years. And I did a um, novel writing course at um, City University, which was very good. And I don't I don't think you have to do courses in order to be able to write books, um, but it was useful, particularly because at the end of that course, we um, produced an anthology for literary agents, and we met literary agents. And off the back of that, I was signed up by my excellent agent. Juliet Mushens, who has a particular interest in historical fiction and crime fiction and ghost stories, um, and she she got me a, a good deal um, for my debut. And yeah, so I I think and that happened quite quick. Having it, it took me years to write the book, but the actual you know going about getting the deal happened relatively quickly. But of course, just the, the fact that you know you're published doesn't mean that you'll continue to be published. And I do very much think that it is a sort of an ongoing. <laughs> <laughs> an ongoing um issue for all writers um you know you, you can get a decent debut contract but that doesn't necessarily mean that your career will continue as it, as it has so i'm you know very much conscious that i need to you know up my game and 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 be the best writer i can be and also just you know keep my hand in with other things i mean i'm still working um albeit only as a consultant for a criminal justice charity which is great um, for many reasons, but also because I think, you know, a career as a writer is, is not generally a very secure one. No, absolutely. Um, and you're right. It, it often is um, sort of fortuitous how these things start, isn't it? I know mm. um, I, I was the same. You know, my first book was traditionally published um, and I'd, I'd spent 10 years writing the thing as well. Okay, mm. mine, mine's non-fiction, which is a little bit different, I suppose, because, you you know, there's a lot more back research into that sort of thing. But again, it was just being in the right place at the right time with, with somebody who was also published by the same publisher who went, oh, have you met? And so on. And, and <laughs> it kind of went from there. So there are all sorts of ways in, aren't there? There are, and I think, you know, when Juliet picked me up as a client, she just had enormous success with um, 
Jessie Burton's The Miniaturist. So she was looking for other historical novels. You know, had that not happened, then who knows? She might have been looking for, for something else altogether. So, yeah, I think it is largely... Um, largely luck and keeping on trying uh, so let, let's move on to talk about the book that we that we're actually going to spend most of this this interview talking about and that is your second novel the story keeper um now again this was based on a real case wasn't it although this time you changed the location more significantly than you did with the first novel so can you tell people a little bit about the uh, plot, without giving away too many spoilers, about the plot yes, <laughs> and uh, and the themes of the story keeper. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as you say, it was inspired by a real case. It was inspired by the case of the West Ham vanishings of the late 1880s, which was where um, a series of young people went missing from the East End of London um, in circumstances which were never explained. And the second of the girls, Eliza Carter, um, the second girl to disappear. One of the reports of her disappearance said that she returned briefly before her final disappearance and said that she'd been taken by the fairies, which I thought was very peculiar. Um, And she was then never seen again. Her dress was found in West Ham Park with all the buttons ripped off, but she was never seen again. So that sort of gave me the kernel of an idea for a story. And I originally thought that I would stick with a real story um, as I had with the, the unseeing. But I, for various reasons, decided I wasn't going to do that. And and partly because I was fed up of London, to be honest. I'd written, my first book was set in London. I live in London. I wanted to do something else. And I also wanted to set the story somewhere where folklore and fairy tales were very much more believed in the 19th century. It was very much more part of the culture. And um, then I went to the Isle of Skye. And I don't know if you've been to the Isle of Skye, but it's, um, it's a very beautiful place. And it's also a very unworldly looking place you know quite barren and yes really quite strange looking in places and I decided that was that was where I was going to set it so it starts in 1857 and a young, young woman called Audrey is fleeing London for, for Sky, where she goes to take up the position as an assistant to a reclusive folklorist called Miss Buchanan at her clifftop mansion Lanley. And there she's tasked with collecting folk and fairy lore from the local community. But this is 1857, so it's in the wake of the Highland Clearances, and this is a community that's been destroyed, basically. This is um, this is the people who are hostile, they're suspicious. And then Audrey finds the body of a young woman in the bay below the mansion, supposedly drowned. And at that point, she realises that something else is going on, something strange is going on. And the book is really about her working out whether what is happening is the work of some kind of supernatural entity or whether it's some rather more human abuse going on. So that's sort of the, the premise. And, of course, to find out the answer to that, people are going to have to read the book, so we're not going to give away <laughs> any more uh, any more spoilers than that. But now what's really unusual for me with this novel is to have a folklorist as the central character. Um, the that whole kind of aspect is not very common at all in in literature. I don't think. Now, why did you choose to do that? And and I suppose I ought to ask as well whether you based her on any particular folklorist in our own history. Um, this is where I realised that I wrote the book so long ago that I'd forgotten the name of the folklorist on whom I partly based her. I mean, I partly based her on several people. 
um, and particularly one Scottish folklorist whose name will come to me in a minute, um, who was, like Miss Buchanan, is quite a reclusive character, um, who's really, who had been ill and sort of shut off from the world and finds a life, really, in the folklore and the tales. Um, and part of the reason I set it in, in 1857 is because this is the time that the folklore collecting really begins. The 19th century folklorists really start their collecting, their concern that the tales are vanishing, um, and they start going out or directing other people to go out and, you know, find the humble villages and get their stories off them. I mean, why did I choose to write about a folklorist? I suppose... It's always in, difficult to remember why <laughs> things come about. I mean, I started off, I wanted to write um, a dark fairy tale. I knew that. And then I came across this story of um, Eliza Carter disappearing. And I knew I wanted to write a story about the supernatural being used to mask abuse. I'd read several accounts from the 19th century where people had attributed what it sounded like child abuse or murder or various terrible things to to supernatural beings. And I thought that was a really interesting issue and I wanted to play with it. Um, and, then I, and then I wanted to have a sort of an outsider be the one who comes into the community. And I suppose I decided that it would be a good idea to get someone to act as a folklorist assistant because that would be someone who would go out and you know collect the stories and meet the people but who wouldn't necessarily understand those stories and understand what they mean so I think probably I started off with the idea of a folklorist assistant before I got to the folklorist herself but then of course she became a central part of it yes and I did wonder because because of the the, the basis in fairy law whether whether you'd based her on Catherine Briggs as, as obviously one of the the you know, most he was one of the people I thought of, but there were several others, and I'm sorry, I'm terrible. I can't remember the names. Who was the woman who worked with Yates? A brief interjection at this point in the interview. Directly after we finished recording and the pressure was off, Anna told me the names of the two folklorists that she was referring to in this section of the interview. They were Lady Evelyn Stuart Murray for Scotland, and Lady Gregory in Ireland. Now back to the interview. So you um, you moved the story from London, where you had the basis in the in the actual case, and as you say, you you chose to set it on Sky. Now, oh, it's Lady Gregory. So I'm going to go back. It's Lady Gregory is one ah. of the folklorists I used to the Irish folklorist. Perfect. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. No, no, no that's <laughs> fine. That's fine. It's important to know because people like to look at these sorts of things if they don't know them themselves. Yeah. Um, so yes, you set it on Sky. Now, oral history, storytelling, obviously, they're key to folklore, aren't they? So um, now you you know that's one of the reasons, as you say, that you chose Sky as a location. Yeah. So so. How did you actually go about doing the research there for that? You obviously travelled to Sky and, and had a good old poke around there. How how did that work out? Well, I see that because, because I've got young children, I wasn't actually able to go to Sky as much as I would have wanted to. I started off reading all the folklore online in the British Library um, and, and learning a, a lot about it through books and through the internet. And then I had a few weekends beautiful weekends um mostly on my own staying in a little cabin in or in broadford or in a lovely b&b in breakish which is around where the novel is mainly set um and i i just did a lot of walking about the land really i mean this is 
the, you know, the landscape and the land was very important to the story. So I had some wonderful weekends walking about, sort of taking videos and recordings of the sounds and making notes of, of what everything was like and taking loads of photographs so that I could try and capture that slightly eerie landscape and, and, and atmosphere and then and you know and then going to the places where so Alanali is not a real place but it is on a real place in that it is on what's called Irishman's Point on Broadford Bay so I spent a lot of time there imagining what the house would have looked like what it would have been like for Audrey looking out onto the bay I found a place where she would have found the, the, the young girl's body. So just really trying to, to put myself in the place and, and, and imagine the story from there. And it was far easier to write it, unsurprisingly, while I was there than when I was sitting up in my bedroom in London. And, and did you try and do the same thing as, as um, your characters in the book and collect any stories while you were there? Did you get a chance to talk to locals and, and kind of get that side of it as well? I did. I did, I did talk to, I didn't really collect stories, but, I, you know, I did talk about, you know, people who, whose ancestors had been cleared, um, people who had been, you know, whose families had been there for generations. I had a slightly interesting experience. I went into, because the minister is one of the characters in the story keeper, and I went into the church at Broadford, which features in the novel, because I wanted to, you know, understand what it looked like. Um, and as I left, I was, uh, I turned round, and there was a man following me, and who turned out he was one of the church elders, and he wanted to know what my purpose was there. Um, so, you know, I handed him my card and explained I was a writer. I couldn't quite bring myself to tell him that I was writing about terrible things happening on his island. Um, <laughs> but hopefully they've forgiven me. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they probably have. Now, I mean, one, one of the... Uh... One of the the key aspects, I suppose, within this this book from a folklore angle is the fact that it does yeah. contain a lot of stories mm. because we're talking about a folklore collector and the collecting of stories. So there are naturally stories within the the novel as a whole. What are the roots of the stories that you included within your own fiction? Well, some of them, yeah, I did try and include quite a few of them. Some of them are from Sky. Some of them are specifically from Sky, um, folklore that was collected by a female folklorist in the 19th century. Some of them come from elsewhere in the Hebrides. So the the main the main piece of folklore that I use is the Slua, who um, were spirits who took the sometimes took the form of birds and who were believed to be spirits of the restless dead um so that was uh you know a real piece of folklore but that had been collected from elsewhere in the hebrides so ben buckler and various various other places um and then i used you know many other stories from the highlands really that you know changelings are mentioned and um, various other bird-like pieces of folklore I was, you know, it was it was an opportunity basically to include lots of the really dark folklore that exists in the Hebrides and, and elsewhere in Scotland. And in fact, when I was doing the research for this book, I was reading some of it to my children and they were, you know, terrified. <laughs> some of the stories are really, really quite dark um, and fascinating. And then that was partly what what drew me to, to writing about Sky in the first place. Um, it's got a very rich rich history of folklore and a very dark one did you have particular favorites within those stories 
Well, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by changelings and by, in particular by the stories that come from the Hebrides. So these stories of the, and the speeches in the novel, the, you know, the things they would do to change the children they believe to be changelings in order to sort of out them. So they would put them over the fire. They would bury them alive. They would, um, you know, leave them out on the hill at night expecting that the true voice of the changeling would speak through. And I found those those stories particularly horrifying but also really interesting because you kind of think well those were probably children who were ill or had some kind of you know genetic mutation that that they didn't understand and because they had no remedy and no way of finding out that was how they dealt with it so um yeah those those stories i found particularly interesting um but also disturbing and i don't know if you've read the good people by hannah kent but she also deals with with the changeling trope and, and and what happened in a real case in County Kerry. Yes, I haven't got um, I haven't got to that book yet, but it is on my recommended reading list. It's so. a hard read because it is painful. It's about a little boy and 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 what happens to him because of their beliefs. Um, so it is a hard novel to read, but it is it's very good. Yeah, and I mean there are lots of hard stories, you know, within our own history surrounding the changeling children and things like that. Uh, you know, the the Cleary case, for example, is, is one. Yeah, you know, exactly, which is yeah. which is really harsh like that. Um, it I, is, and in fact, yes, because as I said, when I I started off by reading a lot about sort of cases that were that came to the courts where people had used sort of the defence of the supernatural, and Bridget Cleary was, of course, one of the main ones. Um, and you know, for those who don't know about it, this is an Irish case of a woman who was accused by her husband of being a changeling, and they did, you know, terrible things to try and get her to confess. And you know, you look back at it now, and you think, well, this, this is probably a woman who was ill or who was mentally ill, and and she was basically tortured for it. So it's a, yeah, fascinating, but also very awful case. Yeah, yes, it really is. Um, we're um we're putting an event on at the end of may um i'm working with i was talking about this in the last episode uh working with um holly at the center for folklore myth and magic and and we'd put a, a symposium on or she'd put a symposium on i should say last year on on witches um and there's oh. a there's a two-day um event at the end of may in Todmorden, which is looking at fairy folklore this year, but in particular, it's looking at the darker side of fairy folklore. Just you know, because um, it's not all, you know, gossamer wings and and um, you know, Disneyfication, is it? And and it's certainly not. No, certainly not in Celtic folklore. No, 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 absolutely not. Um, and you know, a couple of episodes ago, we had Morgan Daimler on. And they were talking about their dictionary of fairies, and in particular about Celtic fairies. Um, and yes, you're right; there is a lot of a lot of darker aspects there, isn't there? But I mean, dark is kind of popular, isn't it, in in fiction terms in, with a lot of people? It is. I mean, you know, we we have a huge love of crime fiction, and increasingly a sort of gothic fiction. And I think you know, folklore really feeds into that, and that's probably why we've seen what seems to be a bit of a resurgence of folklore and fiction recently you know they are they are dark tales and they are a way of diverting ourselves from the other things that are going on in our lives yeah they really aren't and i was going to ask you about that actually whether you know i mean you're right folklore is having a resurgence in fiction writing um but do you think that its popularity has become broader than that and folklore is just seeing a resurgence 
outside of the, uh, for want of a better term, academic study of folklore, um, when we think about things like, well, today is Thursday, it's Folklore Thursday on Twitter, you know, one of the most popular hashtags around. Um, Do you think that the popularity of folklore to the lay person has become broader? And if you do, why do you think that's the case? I do. I do think it has become wiser. And I think that is partly thanks to the Folklore Thursday hashtag. Um, But it's also, you know, it also shows that there was already a huge amount of interest out there that that, that it kind of brings together every Thursday. Um, And, you know, I I think it's both both sort of, you know, an interest in, in sort of historic folklore, which we see, you know, we've seen sort of in the sort of retelling of myths. Turkey is obviously the most famous one recently. There's a lot of, you know, retelling of myths and fiction. Um, but there's also been sort of, you know, urban legends, you know, the creepy pasta things such as the Slender Man, which have, I guess, been going on for a long time, but seem to have found a sort of more mainstream audience. Um, you know, I did a talk last year with Phoebe Locke, who, who wrote The Tall Man, which is based on the Slender Man. Um, I think people are really really interested in folklore and more perhaps more interested in folklore and myths than they had been although you know it's difficult to tell but it does it does feel it does feel like there's more out there and that there's more happening and more interest and you know as to why that might be well I think you know we're we're living in a time of great change and and crisis really and when that happens people are always looking for maybe some kind of sense of magic or enchantment, some kind of connection to a, a lost world. Um, I don't know. So, so, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly fiction and folklore and fiction. It's a way of looking at the dark side, but in a kind of safe way. It's, you know, exploring the old stories and the, the darker side of life, but knowing that it is only in a sort of fairly safe form. Um, and I think that's partly why crime fiction is so so popular, but maybe it is also why folklore and fiction is so popular. Yeah, and what about um, what about folk horror? I mean, that's I guess you think that sees a, a similar resurgence. You know, the the folk horror revival Facebook group is very big, for example. Um, yeah. How how do you pin that term down? Because it's quite an elusive term, I think. Folk horror. What what is it to you? Uh, well, when I think folk horror, I think sort of pagan rituals and, you know, ending with someone being sacrificed, essentially. I mean, it was, a, it was initially, and it was initially um, used to talk about, um, I'm trying to remember which of it, I think it was used, it was used originally to talk about Blood on Satan's Claw, the 1971 film, but it's yeah. come to cover because it's, you know, always used more to do with film. Obviously, The Wicker Man is the most famous one, but also The Witchfinder General, Straw Dogs, um, Children of the Core, and then most recently, Midsummer, um, which I think has led to sort of a, a bit more of a, a folk horror revival, both in film and hopefully in fiction. I mean, there have been quite a few. I mean, the, it was sort of kick-started in fiction by Andrew Michael Hurley's The Lonely back in 2004, which is a fantastic book. Have you read that? Uh, no, I haven't, not yet. You have it's so good, um, and I love all his books. I have well, I've just started Starbaker, um, which is his most recent one. But he, it's that kind of idea of using the landscape um, to really ev- evoke the eerie power of nature and sort of this, um, you know, the preoccupation with the sinner 
sinister side of agrarian life, and that's very much come out in his book. But there's, you know, there's been there've been lots more. There's been sort of and Alice in Littlewoods, the Little People, for example, Victor Lavelle's Changeling. Um, so I do think I do think there is more of an interest in folk horror and 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 sort of horror in general, I suppose. And I think again that goes back to you know, when you're in a time of, of upheaval and uncertainty, then you want something else. And it, in fact, that, that feeds back into the, the Gothic as well. And I think we've seen a rise in Gothic. And again, you know, the Gothic is always more popular at times of, of great trauma. And in fact, you know, it started about the same time as the French Revolution. So, yeah, I think it all, I think it all, can sort of be attributed to this particular era that we're living in and do you think people might want to go for a light romance or comedy and you know i'm sure a lot of people do but there are also those of us who find escape in the darker side yes absolutely but if we think about folklore and and the gothic more generally i mean it's it's not always about horror is it i mean it's often about legends within our landscape so which is a yeah. kind of a bit of a crossover with the with the folk horror scene perhaps and the gothic scene um but not always horrific so i mean are there, are there other particularly strong examples um within fiction for you of that kind of folk aspect of, of the landscape and and um you know the legendary aspects or the historical aspects perhaps yeah i mean there's been so many we talked earlier about um Caroline, Caroline Lee's book, The Glass Woman, which I think is fantastic, and it uses folklore and the and the the landscape really beautifully. And they've been really, they've been. I mean, it was sort of you know began with um, the Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry. I think that sort of made publishers realise there was this real kind of interest in in sort of folklore linked fiction. But there've been you know some amazing books since there. There's been The Seal Woman's Gift. It's fantastic. Um, Once Upon a River by Diane Setterfield, I love, and that also is using folklore and the idea of the river um, linking the many stories within it together. So, you know, I think there have been a lot, there's also been sort of a rise of um, folk, uh, sort of more sort of modern Gothic books, but also linked to the landscape and, in fact, the Highland landscape recently. Um so there's Molly Aitken as the Island Child, which is rooted in Irish folklore. Um, and there's Lucy McKnight Hardy's Watershaw Refuse, which is sort of using British folk horror traditions in the Welsh landscape. And then there's Francine Toon's Pine, which is sort of modern Gothic folklore novel set in the, in the, in the Scottish Highlands. So there do seem to be sort of a surge in them. And then Starbaker, as I mentioned, is, is, um, Andrew Michael Hurley's latest one, and is that set in the Yorkshire Dales in an isolated house? So it does feel there's a you know a very rich vein of folklore in fiction coming through. Yes, and also in children's fiction as well. I mean, I I um, interviewed um, Sophie Anderson recently about um, uh, her latest book. Um, and she, you know, she uses Russian folklore uh, in, in her children's writing, and that's been immensely popular. Um, the, okay. the the girl the the girl who speaks bear was was her last one, um, which okay. we did an interview on, um, and then the house with chicken legs, uh, which is obviously based on the Baba Yaga uh, oh, Russian okay. stories. 
Um, I need to get my son onto them, clearly. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're fantastic books. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 not just... It's not just in adult fiction, it's in just... But then I guess that's often, you know, that's been the case all the way through, hasn't it? If you think about uh, Susan Cooper, you know, if we yeah. go, go back to yeah, when... Yeah, in fact, when... I, bought, I bought them for my son for um, for Christmas, the Susan Cooper books. But he's still insisting on reading terrible Minecraft books, but we will get there in the end. <laughs> but yes, you're right, there is, yeah, you're, there's, there's a... There's a long tradition mm. of it, really. Yeah, and and our daughter, who who um, before she went to secondary school, and and the joys of the accelerated reader program, uh, was more of a reluctant reader. She fortunately reads more than she used to now because of that. Yeah. Um, she really engaged with the um, R.L. Anderson uh, books, Knife, and and so on, which obviously again are based on you know they're based around fairy. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah. there's a, yeah, there's a lot, a lot in children's fiction as well, which is which is brilliant to see. Um, how about the supernatural generally within fiction? Have you got particular favourites there as well? Oh, I have. I've been doing a lot of as I mentioned. So the the book I've recently embarked on also it features as I mentioned Poltergeist. So I've been doing a lot of reading of ghost books basically. I've basically immersed myself in horror and ghosts and we've been having very peculiar dreams. I mean my favourite my favourite is Shirley Jackson, um so The Haunting of Hill House. Yes. Etc. They they're my favourite and I just for anyone who loves an audio book, do listen to her books on Audible. Um, they're all read by Bernadette Dunn. An American actress with a very creepy voice, and <laughs> she just does it so beautifully. Yes, I think um, I, I think I know so, I know the the actress you're talking about, and I can. Yes, yeah. I think she could do you know cornflakes adverts and make them sound spooky. Yes, She's really absolutely. really good, and the stories themselves are just incredible. Um, so yes, I mean, I'm friends with um, Laura Purcell, who wrote The Silent Companions. Her books are fantastically creepy and ghostly. I've just, in fact, um. Uh, a friend of mine, Sinead Crowley, recommended that I read a book called The Uninvited by Dorothy McArdle. I don't know if you've heard of that. It was um, actually released in 1942, but it's recently been reissued. And it, that's great fun. It kind of feels a bit like um, Secret Seven for grown-ups. That was <laughs> Brilliant. Really yeah, I know that. I know the title, but I've not I've not read it. Um, yeah, and no, I really enjoyed that. And then, I, and then I'm back on my Stephen King. I'm reading re- 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 The Shining at the moment. Um, and he, it was just, I'd forgotten quite how good that book is. Yes, it's yeah. just genius. It's and then, genius. then there's, um, if, uh, if you look at the slightly less in-your-face style of that fiction as well, I'm thinking about the popularity of um, Sarah Waters' The Little Stranger recently oh, yes, with, the, with the film book. version. That's my favourite book. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great Yeah, I mean, that is, you say it's less in-your-face, but it is terrifying, that book. I mean, I it is less... Yeah, there is it's less kind of jump out at you horror, but it is properly spine callingly creepy. I mean, I'm generally not that scared by books or films, but I really did have to keep the light on at night when we didn't have one. <laughs> yes, it's very it's very clever and in that sort of vein, you know, and Laura Purcell is also more more along along that sort of vein. But it's psycho- you know, creepy psych- without being yeah. properly horror. It's psychological tension, isn't it? And and that's yeah. that's the worst kind often as well because it leaves, yeah, yeah. leaves way more idea, to you. And which is a lot of the 20th century fiction is this idea that it might be the supernatural but it, it also might be something else which yeah. of course I use in, in the, the story keeper as well. Yes. Um, but yes, I'm trying to work out with with my next one whether I'm going to keep to that or whether I'm going to go for the proper scares. We will see. <laughs> uh, are you again basing it on 
any cases from our own history? I'm well. I am not using one specific case. I am. I mean, as, as all historical writers do, I am using bits of different cases. So I have been terrifying myself by um, reading about poltergeist cases and watching bits of footage. I've been making my husband watch. Um, the footage from the Enfield poltergeist. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, really, yes, and little, actually, yeah. over and above that, I um, I do have uh, because Guy Playfair sent them to me um, a uh-huh. few years ago. Copies of some of their audio recordings from the Enfield oh, wow. case. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and they're okay. they're, uh, they're interesting <laughs> to listen to. I haven't listened to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk, talk to me about yeah, that, that case is separately. Really, you know, terribly unnerving. And in fact, someone I, when I was given a, a talk recently, someone told me that she herself had tried to write a book about poltergeist and had, had then become the medium for poltergeist. So I'm now <laughs> slightly nervous about this um, this whole undertaking. But but we shall see. <laughs> we'll see where that goes. Yes, but before that, yeah. while you're working on that, you do have another book that's due to come out relatively soon well oh well who knows i it'll be due to go on submission fairly soon whether anyone wants to publish to be seen yeah my next one is sort of um it's set in 18th century paris and it's about an automaton maker and um and his daughter that goes missing and again that is partly based on a real case the vanishing children of paris of 1750, which is when children just start going missing from the streets and no one knows why. But um, again, I've, I've moved away from the real story and it's become, again, it's got an element of the supernatural and it's, it's as I say, they keep getting darker. I think this one is, is creepier than the story keeper. Um, but it's, yeah, it's been good fun to write. Oh yes, I'm sure it absolutely has. It sounds like it. Now, um, you're, writing in all of these cases is uh very much based on actual historical cases um and it's very much based in kind of if not folklore in its purest sense certainly in the wider sense so with that in mind what does your writing process look like working with the type of material that we're interested in here are you a big researcher from books or do you prefer to go out i'm trying to be as i've gone along i've tried to be more organized about it with with not a huge amount of success i mean certainly for my first novel and partly because it was based on a real legal case um i did a tremendous amount of research most of which i never used so for my for the for my more recent books what i've been doing is is the tracy chevalier model what she does is she tends to do broad research to begin with so that she can kind of map it out then she'll work out sort of the broad plot outline so she knows more or less what she's writing and then she'll go back in and do more research so that's kind of how I do it I tend to do the broad research so I understand the world I'm writing in and I can kind of get ideas from the research as I'm going along and then I'll plot it out um, probably draft the first few chapters then I'll do sort of more detailed research um, to help me pin it down. Then I'll go back and do more drafting. And as I do the drafting, then then more questions arise and I go and do more and more research. But of course, the danger with that approach is that you just go down a rabbit hole of research, which is often <laughs> what happens because the researching is far easier and generally more interesting than the writing bit. And then I sort of have to drag myself out and 
and make myself carry on with the writing. And I tend to, I work in Scrivener, um, which is a, a program that you can use to sort of divide your novel up. And that, I mean, various programs let you do this, but Scrivener lets you set a daily word count and it's a target. So I tend to set myself targets so that I don't just wander off and do the research forever. Um, <laughs> but should... it still, still seems to take me a terribly long time. I've said to myself that I'm going to get this first one down, you know, my, my fourth one, I'm going to get it down in a year. I mean, it won't be any good within a year, but I, my aim is to at least have, you know, a first draft um, that I can work with because, you know, otherwise you can just research for all eternity. Really. You should maybe consider becoming a non-fiction writer if the research is, is a big part for you. I, I, yeah, certainly wouldn't rule it. I mean, I do love writing fiction. I love it, but you know, I do also, I do do also really like nonfiction. But then, you know, but then it's a tremendous amount of research. So, yeah, I mean, maybe I certainly wouldn't rule it out. But I, yeah, I mean, I, I really want to write novels at the moment um, and scripts. I've started writing scripts as well. But yeah, they're all very different Keep styles, them. aren't they? They are all very different styles. Um, you, yeah. you mentioned Caroline Lee's book the glass woman earlier uh which is obviously something else that we've we've spoken about i interviewed caroline on the podcast a few episodes ago again an absolutely fantastic book um and i as i say i opened up on twitter uh the chance to ask you questions and caroline in fact was the first person out of the gates um and i think you've probably just addressed what she was interested in which was how you research and how you balance that against planning and writing your books so hopefully you've satisfied her there very well. Maybe not. She will no doubt let me know if I have. I mean, it's always interesting. I'm always interested to know how other writers do it. Um, and I'm always hoping that there will be a correct answer that we can all follow <laughs> and then all, all write our novels without it going desperately wrong. But I, I think I write in the same way as most people, which is that I, you know, I, I can only really feel my way a little bit at a time. I mean, I try to plan it out more carefully each time I've written a book. But that hasn't necessarily made it much easier because it doesn't necessarily t stick to the plan. And in fact, people, I, the people I know who say that they write according to the character perhaps find it easier. I think maybe if you work out your characters to begin with, then that's an easy way of doing it. But I, I tend to start with the idea rather than the characters. Or, you know, so for the story keeper, I knew I wanted to write this fairy tale and then I worked out you know what the story was it wasn't the characters who came to me first so I mean I think you know we all do it our own way um but whichever way this seems to take a long time <laughs> uh I had another question as well from from somebody else on Twitter um Alison Stockham um who also responded to my tweet and wanted me to ask you um when you're researching folklore for ideas whether you mm. start with an area or a type of law and and whether it's lo like location or story that interests you first when you're looking for ideas it's really the story i or it's really kind of a, a single idea i mean all writers start start off their books in different ways and i've heard some people will say they come they you know a single sentence will come into their head and they'll know what that is also or some i was thinking to another writer who said it's always an image she'll have an image and she wouldn't necessarily understand what that image is, but then she'll go and explore it, and that will become the the you know the story. For me, it's an an idea. Um, so as I say, in this case, it was a, a fairy tale for the for my the one I've more or less just finished. I knew I wanted to write about Automata. I knew I wanted to write about an automaton maker. So I start with this idea, 
and then I tend to read around it in order to get ideas and to find out what I might want to write about. Um, so for the story keeper, I started off with this idea of the fairy tale. Then I read around and I found out um, a lot about fairy lore in the Victorian era and the folklore. And then I honed down on specific stories. So in that case, I ended up with, as I've talked about, the slewer who take you know people off into the sky, and that became sort of the focus of it. So, I mean, I guess. Yeah, I just start with sort of this kernel of an idea and then research around it until I find something that really fascinates me and that I think I can make into a story. Um, that's not to say it's the right way of doing it. As I say, everyone does it their own way. And just to bring this full circle to wrap up, um, we should return to the story keeper, which is, you know, the, the, the main thrust of, of this conversation after all. Um, now, the story keeper is obviously very much entrenched in um, what you might want to call traditional folklore and traditional beliefs. That is the collecting, the transmission of stories um, and the importance of stories to people culturally. Um, yeah. Why do you think stories and storytelling are so important to us as a species? Because I think I think we've always used stories in order to understand our situation, in order to make sense of life. Um, I mean, you know, right from the stage where people were sort of gathering around fires and telling each other stories, it's just a way of moulding our experience into something that makes sense sense of it all I think that's where folklore comes from it's a way of sort of teaching the next generation perhaps about what our culture thinks is important of course it's also a form of entertainment um it, it was then it is now it's a way of of transmitting material in a way that helps us make sense of the world but it also you know makes us happy makes us interested makes us scared you know, stories, they're certainly everything to me, but I, you know, I do think they are the way we understand our world, really. They really are. They really are. And, and um, you know, in that vein, I would encourage everybody um, to get hold of a copy of The Story Keeper and have a look at that because it, it really does come across in that book. So, it, I mean, if people want to find out more about your writing and and your work um and want to read your book how would you advise them to do so where would they go for more information about you and where is the best place to obtain a copy of the book well um i have a website animatola.com and you know everything is there but also do feel free to drop me a line on social media i spend far too much time on twitter as you know um i do love talking to readers so do get in touch in terms of where to buy the book the best place is of course your local bookshop um i do encourage people to order in um but you know feel free to get out of your library that's also great um and as I say, do come and do come and talk to me on social media, and you know, do ask, do feel free to ask me questions about your own writing. I'm always, you know, as I say, interested to hear about how other people are doing it, particularly if people have an interest in folklore and fairy lore. So yes, that's me. Excellent. And you did say on Twitter when I opened this up to people that they should ask you questions, but they should be asking questions about folklore and about your writing and not asking you what your favourite biscuit is. So we must finish by asking you, what is your favourite biscuit? <laughs> 
I knew I shouldn't have said that because, you know what, since I tweeted that, everyone has been asking me what, what my favourite biscuit is. And my terrible confession is that I don't even like biscuits very much. I actually, if given a choice of unhealthy foods, would eat chocolate. Therefore, the biscuit I choose must be essentially chocolate with a bit of biscuit in it. Um, Kit Kats. I'm going to go for Kit Kats. I made the mistake of buying some for my children a while ago. Um, and I've just basically steadily made my, my own way through them without them eating any of them. So there you go, Kit Kat. Not very folkloric, are they? Not at all. But then uh, they they are they they are good for fueling folklorists and anybody else. Um, other chocolate biscuits are available. Um, <laughs> yes. Lovely to talk to you, Anna. It's been brilliant to have you on. Thank you so much. And and if nothing else, it will it will teach you to think about what you put on Twitter before entering into these sorts of things. I should have learned by now, shouldn't I? Yes, you're right. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'm delighted to have had the opportunity to speak to Anna about her work in what was a fascinating interview. We in fact carried on chatting about other things for a while after recording stopped. You'll find Anna's photo, notes about her work and link to her website on the guests page of the Folklore Podcast website. And depending on when you listen to this episode, there is, or soon will be, a review of the Storykeeper on the book review page of the site too. We are sticking with books for one more episode of the podcast before we move on to some other things. On the next episode, I'll be speaking with Edward Parnell about his popular, recently released book, Ghostland, which explores folklore and folk horror literature in the British landscape. In the meantime, to play us out of this episode of the podcast, here is one of the performers taking part in the forthcoming dark side of the Fay weekend, being jointly hosted by ourselves and the Centre for Folklore, Myth and Magic this coming May. This is Sharon Krauss with The Birds of Rhiannon. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
Yeah. Hey.